Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for January 2nd, 2022, our first show of the new year. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Welcome, as always, Catherine Smith. Happy New Year from Atlanta. And welcome back to the show, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, glad to have both of y'all on. Um, The last show we had about two weeks ago, uh, I guess it was actually technically three weeks ago, we talked about Panthers um, with Craig Pittman. Now, those are Florida Panthers, and I thought, well, you know what? You know, Tim and Catherine, I don't know if they deserve to talk about Panthers, but I'm I'm a nice guy. I'm letting you all off the hook. So tonight, we're going to have Andrew Gumble. Now, we're not going to talk about Florida Panthers. We're going to talk about Georgia State Panthers and his book, Won't Lose This Dream. Now, no, we're not going to dig deep into the sports programs. We're going to talk about the university and transformation of that college that's really led a lot of other colleges to do innovative stuff to bring up graduation rates um, and um, access to gaining degrees. So we're going to have Andrew in about 20 minutes. But until then, we're going to start getting into some of our political topics And we're going to start off kind of with a bit of a sad note. It seems like in the last few weeks, we have lost a lot of famous people. It seems like more than the typical, um, say, two-week period um, just in the last little bit. And included in that was a political um, loss a few weeks ago with former Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson passing. Um, I don't know that um, he was maybe as beloved, as well-known to us as, say, a Max Cleland or a John Lewis, but certainly an important politician in Georgia. Uh, Catherine, any thoughts on Johnny Isaacson's life and work and passing? Well, you know, I, uh, I, I, had a lot, I actually had a lot of admiration for um, Senator Isaacson, and um, I think I've talked about this in the past on the show. He's the only Republican that I've ever voted for in my life. Um, uh, I voted for him. I, I can't remember if it was 2006 or whenever it was, um, because I was um, very pleased with the work that he'd done on um, the START Treaty and on um, a, on trying to resolve sexual harassment in the military, some policies and legislation around that. So. I had a lot of admiration for him. Obviously, we disagreed on many things. I did meet him once and had a, you know, relatively lengthy conversation with him, and I really did have a lot of admiration for him, and I am sorry for his family for their loss and those who loved him and worked closely with him all these years. Um, But I I was, um, he was sort of an old-school Republican and in in these days, they are um, much more attractive than they were maybe in the past. So we'll miss him, and uh, I, that's really all I have to say about him. Yes, Tim? 
he was a, a nice and respectful man uh, <laughs> in, a, in a sea of sharks. Uh, his, his presence kind of took me back to another time when, you know, all senators routinely conducted themselves as he did. Um, he he routinely worked with people on both sides of the aisle, as Catherine mentioned. Uh, of course, I, I also disagreed with many of his stances on issues, but he was someone you would consider an adversary and, and never an enemy. Uh, the man would never embarrass this state in any way. He had class. Um, he he did well in his career. He he will be missed, uh, especially when I look around the country and see some folks in different federal offices now. And uh, you just uh, you just yearn for for people like that because they make the process better. Yes, That's pretty you know, much you, all I have. Yes, you know, a few months ago we had um, Jeff Duncan on, and he talked about his book, and, and really he came from a place where he didn't really disagree with a lot of the current Republican positions. It was a lot about tone and the way you conduct your business and work with the other side. It's much more respect. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I kind of get the sense that even though he called it 2.0, like let's do a new thing, in many ways it was kind of like do it like people had done before, like a Johnny Isaacson. Still be conservative because I think if you look at his voting record, it wouldn't be that different from a lot of other Republicans. But it was in a manner in which people could work together. And that's why he and John Lewis – um, we're friends both inside and outside the halls of Congress, and that touching moment where Congressman Lewis was, um, you know, being honored, and Johnny Isaacson was, I think, about that point leaving as well, and they came across the chamber to hug, even though they were in different um, chambers of the, you know, the Congress, and embraced. And I think Mike Lukovich mentioned that moment in a cartoon. You know, like now in the gates of heaven, they're getting to recreate that. And I thought that was very touching. Um, well, you know, once again, just so sad, all the passings we've had, and a lot of them have been entertainment, sports, but then that one is a political one. Um, let's uh, go ahead and when y'all were um, away and Craig Pittman came on, prior to Craig coming on, I talked about Dr. Oz. I gave a lengthy set of thoughts on Dr. Oz. So enough of me. And let's get to y'all on the buy-sell hold of Dr. Oz. Um, Catherine, you gave some thoughts on his candidacy, but you didn't get a chance to do buy-sell hold that week. Uh, go ahead with yours. I, I, I got to say, Sal, I mean, I guess, you know, I, I'm not I, – I just don't think he's, like, electoral material – uh, so I'm going to say sell. Okay. Tim, and you, Tim, you didn't get a chance to give as many thoughts. So if you want to give more thoughts, uh, now's your time. Oh, yeah. I got some thoughts about this guy. Um, you know, uh, Sean Parnell, Parnell, who we've talked about on here a lot, and he was the GOP front runner in that race up. Well, he had to drop out. Um 
And that left a guy by the name of David McCormick, a um, um, guy that's in charge of a hedge fund. Uh, he's worth a lot of money. He can sell fund. And he was the only other major GOP candidate. So Dr. Oz, when he got in, I guess he stepped into something of a void. Um, but he does have <laughs> quite a bit of downside. He lives in New Jersey. Now, you know, that's legal, but it still might hurt him a bit, you know, electorally. People don't seem to like stuff like that. Um, uh, and, 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 of course, he has this history of just crazy medical opinions. I don't know how much that will hurt him in the GOP overall, but it might hurt him some in the suburbs where he needs to pick up some votes. Uh, now, on the other hand, I just mentioned David McCormick. He is an old stu- uh, school conservative. He, he used to work for Bush 43, and uh, he's got some rather moderate stances on the issues. And as we know, that's not where the current GOP voter, uh, by and large, is, especially in rural areas. And Dr. Oz is big friends with Trump. So mainly for that last reason I gave, I'm buying him for the primary. And for now, I'll do a hold on him for the general elections because celebrity candidates don't have a middle ground. They're either a boom or a bust. And so that's where I'm at on Dr. Oz. I'm going to buy him for the primary and put him on hold for the general election for now. All right. Well, like I said, we can go back to that other show and get my thoughts. Um, so now we have um, really, I think, talked a little bit about the way the Georgia governor's race is beginning to take shape. But we haven't done a proper buy-sell-hold on two of the – I guess three candidates at this point, both um, Stacey Abrams and David Perdue. And so now let's take the time um, to start that conversation. It'll probably be on both sides of Andrew Gumbel's uh, interview with us. But let's start off with Stacey Abrams. She, she got in the race before David Perdue. David, um, he, he says David, because yes. she got in the race, that may have impacted his deci- uh, timeline. So, um, Catherine, uh, buy, sell, hold on Stacey Abrams. Oh, I'm buying Stacey Abrams. I think she's a great candidate. I think this is her year. Um, I think she's, uh, you know, very well prepared, very um, obviously very capable, and uh, she's got she's built a great team around her. So I'm I'm buying Stacey. Yes, Tim? Well, immediately upon entering the race, she starts as no worse than an outright 50-50 bet, at worst, to go all the way and become governor. She will have either token or no opposition in the primary, so she can um, save all her bullets for the general election. And Georgia has been trending blue in the last three elections. I got a buyer. Yes. Um, well, as far as the primary goes, I don't think you could have much stronger of a buy. I don't even know what else is for sale 
um, as a Democratic <laughs> candidate. Um, you know, I think we talked about before, like, you know, if she didn't run, what's the plan? There seems to be, you know, almost like an emergency, you know, plan B that would have to be formulated. But luckily, that's just not the case. Um, she's obviously the best candidate to run in Georgia for governor in 2024. Um, so strong, strong by there. Now, as far as the general, um, I think you have to say bye, but the dynamics of the really the country's mood is going to be very, very important. Um, and if you know an election were held right now, Democrats are not in the best place. Now, if things improve, and they can, her chances would only go up. Now, another factor is going to be this GOP primary. Now, we're going to get into David Perdue later, but there are positives and negatives right now before the race is even run about which opponent she faces. Um, and then, of course, we don't know what that race is going to look like, and that may create more positives um, for her. I guess theoretically could create negatives. That's a little harder to see. It's really just, I guess, the negative would be positives don't get created out of it. In some ways, I think she has a better chance against Brian Kemp. Um, and so I'm not getting into David Perdue that, that much there. But um, it's just one of those things you can't tell. I, I think nobody gets out the Democratic base vote in Georgia like she could. But I'm not so sure that um, she persuades as many persuadable voters as maybe some other folks that are running for maybe other offices in Georgia have, um, just being honest. But I will say this, I like, when she did her announcement video, she, I think she gets that rural Georgia is where she's got to do better. And she mentioned Sparta, and she mentioned Peach County, and then she just mentioned rural Georgia in that video. And so it's kind of like she knows where her weak spots are, and she's going to work to improve it. And that's a lot of times candidates don't have the ability to self-actualize and understand where they're weak. And if she's able to do that this early in the race, that's an incredible sign, and that's a sign of a real quality politician. Um, Tim, did you notice that um, about that video that Catherine sent us the link to, how she purposely yes. mentioned specific yes. places outside of Metro Atlanta? Yes, she did. Uh, but, you know, and pe people keep saying that she only concentrated on Metro Atlanta before, and, you know, I saw her in Rome. That same day, she was in Dalton uh, and Cartersville. She 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 got on a bus and she took off. Um, I I, th I think I think she's going to go go after every vote she can get. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I I think uh, the 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 metro vote is already there. That she can turn, she can turn a lot more attention now to areas outside of the 29 counties of the metro area. Um, this is not just going to be an Atlanta versus the rest of Georgia race. I don't think. Not this particular race. Not this time. Too many other dynamics working that we'll talk about when we talk about Purdue. Yeah, I mean, I just I noticed that in that video, and that's important. Because, I mean, there were places, as 
strong as Nathan Deal was in 2014 in re-election, and then Jason Carter's campaign was never able to really gain traction, there were those places where Jason Carter did Stacey Abrams, did better than Stacey Abrams. If I was looking at where can we improve, I'd start with those counties. Now, obviously, you're not giving up turning out the vote in DeKalb and Clayton and Fulton over that, but that's something you want to be aware of. And I get the sense that she is aware of it and her campaign team's aware of it. And that's a real positive sign. Um, let's go ahead and move on to David Perdue. He jumps in the race. I honestly didn't know that he would because it, it, it had been talked about, you know, the Trump team had, had released that poll and he seemed very hesitant. I kind of thought he was going to pass on the race. He ended up not, and more polling's come out, and he looks pretty strong, to be honest. Um, Catherine, I'm sorry, saying in the race in particular against uh, Brian Kemp. Um, buy, sell, and hold, and just give us all your thoughts on David Perdue's candidacy. Well, I'm no fan of David Perdue, and um, I think he's sort of an empty suit. I've never felt that he had um, much of a message or, um, you know, he just seems vanilla to me, like doesn't really stand for anything specific. Um I, I would say, I, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say bye on him because I'd like Stacy to run against him. I think that would be a good um, matchup for Stacy. Um, I, I just, I, I find him, uh, I was surprised that he ran too, because I just don't, I just don't see him as a, you know, down in the um, dirt, you know, fighting for the people kind of guy, which is what a governor, you know, is really sort of expected to do. But he is, he does have executive experience, so that's important in a governor. Um, but I'm just not a fan of his, and, and I would like to see Stacey running against him. I think uh, that would be a good matchup. Okay, and I'm glad you disagree. It's good for us to disagree and have different opinions on particularly tough questions. I think Brian Kemp will be the better, uh, the easier candidate for Stacey Abrams to beat. You think David Perdue? Tell me, tell me some reasons why you think he would be easier to beat than David, um, Brian Kemp. Um, well, I think that he's not as um, he's not as well known to the people of Georgia because. He's been out of office for a while, and uh, he's he doesn't have much of a personality. Not that Brian Kemp does either, but um, I don't think he's very uh, fast on his feet, like in a debate situation or um, you know in front of people. Um, I don't. He doesn't really have a record to run on. I mean, Brian Kemp has, you know, we might not agree with his record, but he does have, you know, a record to run on that he, you know, you know, he claims that he brought all these businesses to Georgia and that kind of thing. So, Catherine, very fair points. And after um, our interview, I'll kind of give my rebuttal of it. And we're going to let Tim jump in here. Uh, as well with his thoughts. But now we want to welcome to the Kudzu Vine for the first time uh, author of Won't Lose This Dream, 
uh, Andrew Gumbel. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Yes. All right. Thank you for calling in. Well, Andrew, um, as people can probably tell, you've got that Santa Monica, California accent. Tell our listeners (laughs) a little bit about your uh, background in both writing and politics and educational study and whatever you'd like to. Sure. Well, just very briefly, um, I was a, I, I worked for Reuters, the international news agency. At the start of my career, I've worked for British newspapers. I've been freelancer in the United States for the last 13 years. Um, I have written periodically about Georgia, especially in the context of elections and controversies over election machinery, um, voter ID laws, um, you know, all the things that have fed into the current controversies. Um, surrounding the Secretary of State's office, the 2018 gubernatorial race, and on and on. Um, I have been a teacher, but my first real exposure to writing about education was the book I wrote about Georgia State University, and that was just a deliberate choice by the publishers. They wanted an author who would come in and tell a story rather than, you know, uh, load a book down with a lot of jargon and charts and figures that would send everybody to sleep except for the experts who already know the story. So um, that was my remit coming in. And, you know, what I found writing about Georgia State and the extraordinary um, innovations it's come up with in the last decade or so in terms of understanding what it takes to give a quality education to low-income students, first-generation students, um, minority students, uh, all of whom you know, converge in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a perfect alignment or a perfect storm, depending on how things are going in downtown Atlanta. Um, so, so what, what struck me was that, you know, there was something fundamental to what is going on in our society at the moment. And it, some of it is not obviously political because it's one of the few areas where Republicans and, and, and Democrats, at least at the state level, tend to agree that getting people university degrees and getting them out the door and into the real world and into the job market is a good thing. Um, but it's also in some less obvious ways very political um, in that it, it, it poses a real challenge to where we've been for the last several decades in terms of widening income inequality the, the, the sort of freezing or the, the stultification of the American dream. And this is really a kind of a radical answer, which is to say, you know, these uh, students who are incredibly determined, incredibly motivated, but historically in many cases, you know, have had the, the deck stacked against them either because of the color of their skin or because of the class that their family is from. You know, we can show you that there's nothing wrong with these students. They are as good, if not better than everybody else. And by the way, the future of our society might well depend on their success. I think that's a profoundly political achievement to have made that case so successfully as Georgia State has. Yes. Well, now, I mean, you're obviously not from Atlanta or, or Georgia, and uh, Georgia, uh, Georgia State University until recent years was not well known outside of the state. And really, in a lot of places in the state was probably an afterthought. How did you come about um, this project? Well, I will tell you, I had never heard of Georgia State before I came across this project. Um, and that was a sort of embarrassment for me at the beginning, but now I think it, it, it tells a story, which is, you know, I'd heard of the University of Georgia. I knew about the Bulldogs. Um, you know, I'd heard of Georgia Tech. I'd heard of Emory. But that was kind of it. 
Um, and as I did my research, it turned out that even the state legislators, you know, whose office windows in many cases look out over parts of the Georgia State campus, it's not that they hadn't heard of it, but they paid it no mind. Um, it was thought of as this unglamorous place. It was kind of work a day. It was a sort of place where the, you know, the B students got educated. Uh, it wasn't somewhere that was any, a reason for anybody to feel any particular pride. It didn't have a football team. It had been a commuted college for a very long time and only started being a residential campus after the Olympics in 96 and on and on. So it was, it was this place that was, you know, flying below the radar um, but had a lot of things going for it. Um, one was the very fact that it had the student makeup it did. Um, it, it was not as heavily dominated by minority students. It was not majority minority, as they say, you know, back in the 90s and 80s, the way it is now. But it, it, it was a place where people from different backgrounds you know, challenged the old paradigm of the South in a very fundamental way. People, you know, met each other, became friends with each other, worked with each other, thrived together um, in a way that was, was refreshingly different. And the other thing that was true was that because um, it became a university in the 60s um, at a time where it was really hard for good professors to find jobs, um, Georgia State was kind of knocking on an open door in terms of finding really excellent faculty. And they had really good teaching and people didn't really know about it. You know, they had an excellent urban studies department that became the basis of the Andrew Young Policy School that now exists. Um, they started a law school in the 80s, not for necessarily terribly edifying reasons. Uh, the, the leadership at the time, who were not especially progressive, thought, uh, that because of affirmative action, a number of white students would not be able to get into the University of Georgia Law School and they wanted to offer them an alternative. It was like a competitive advantage seen through the prism of anti-affirmative action politics. But, you know, it gave the university a law school. Those law, that law school then produced people who became prominent in the state in politics and elsewhere and on and on. So it had certain advantages, but what it didn't have was the key to understanding how to take the student population that had, you know, vast numbers of them, you know, we're talking 60, 70 more percent uh, failing to get a degree. And that was the thing that after the 2008 recession, you know, two things happened. First of all, they had extraordinary leadership that figured out how to make these students successful. But they also had a financial imperative based on the fact that they were losing state appropriation money hand over fist they kind of had to find a way to retain and graduate these students because their revenue depended on it. And the university itself might've failed if they hadn't found a way to do it. You know, other universities in a similar plight um, would simply um, raise their admission standards and try and appeal to a higher class of students thinking that that's going to get them better retention and graduation rates. But, you know, first of all, I think they're grand for questioning that as, as, as a piece of, um, as a piece of, you know, as a solid plan that's going to get you to where you want to go. But also, more importantly, Georgia State had Georgia Tech 15 blocks away, has the University of Georgia 70 miles away. There's no way they were ever going to compete. So all they could do was take the students they had and find a way to make them more successful. And when they started planning um, how they were going to envisage their future after the recession, they had a visit from somebody who'd been the chancellor of the University of the Wisconsin system who expressly told them, embrace who you are, be good at that. Don't try and be something you're not. That's how universities do well. Um, and then they started inventing these extraordinarily innovative programs 
that used the power of data, which was then emerging as, as, a, as a force in all kinds of fields, as a way of monitoring students, nurturing students, helping students feel connected to the university, and to make sure that if things went wrong, they didn't fester for a semester or two or three or four, but the university knew about it right away, jumped on it right away, and addressed the issues so that you know, students didn't run out of time and money. And although they were perfectly talented, suddenly found they had to drop out of college instead of finishing their degree and going on to have a middle-class life, which they'd been aspiring for from the get-go. Yes. Well, now, um, you tell in the book about, you know, leadership, I guess, under several presidents, but including um, Carl Patton. And that's when I was getting my three degrees there. That was who was the president. And the emphasis was more the graduate programs, the Ed School of Education, the Andrews School of Policy Studies, the law school, the very successful MBA program. But then when Mark Beckner comes in, they really enhance the um, undergraduate studies, and that's the real core of your book, the transformation there. But my question is, as the undergraduate uh, school, the four-year bachelor's uh, degrees, you know, the great movement happened there, did it also in turn enhance a lot of the um, upper level programs or did they seemingly suffer? Not, nobody suffered. I think what happened was that uh, Georgia State became a very unusual kind of university. And a lot of people in the university world really struggled with this, including people at the business school, which, as you mentioned, was probably the most prestigious part of, of the university you know, around the 2008 recession time. And what made it unusual was that it is both a research, top-tier research university that, you know, can vie at the graduate level with tech, with the University of Georgia, with the Ivies, you know, you name it. Um, and in fact, Georgia State's research was struggling a little bit in, in the early 2000s. And Mark Becker, when he became president, found ways to really catapult it, you know, forward in terms of grant money received, innovative research, and on and on. So that was the graduate part. Um, and then on the undergraduate side, you know, it wasn't that. It's not an Ivy. It's not an elite school. It's a school for not bad students. It, there is some selectivity. It's not an access institution. It's for B students, basically, coming out of high school. And, you know, especially it already had a reasonably large population of lower income and minority and first generation students. But then once these programs started being successful, they understood that they could really put that into overdrive. So you have the elite graduate institution and you have the incredibly innovative undergrad institution that takes students that conventional wisdom would tell you are doomed to fail in large numbers and proving to the world there's nothing inevitable about their failure. The reason they fail is because universities fail them. And that if there are support mechanisms to understand that these very bright, motivated students didn't have the greatest of high school education or don't have the support from home that other families do in terms of, you know, everything from being able to fill out the, the financial aid form to, you know, if they're told they have a requirement to show their vaccination certificates that, you know, they can't just call their family doctor and get copies of their vaccinations because maybe they don't have a family doctor because maybe their family doesn't have health insurance. You know, these kinds of really basic nuts and bolts problems that shouldn't get in the way of students getting to the finish line and graduating, but too often do. And Georgia State managed to do both things at once. So when they started, you know, the, the, the then dean of the business school, Fenwick Huss, you know, 
as I understand it, and as other people within Georgia State have explained it to me, he didn't, he couldn't really grasp it. He thought, you know, admitting a lot of lower income um, undergraduates with questionable credentials from high school and expecting them to thrive was a fool's errand and was likely to dilute the success of the programs he really cared about, which were the graduate programs in the business school, the most prestigious programs at the university. And, you know, I would say if he was on this program, he would argue back vehemently because he's a very strong-minded guy. But I think he got that spectacularly wrong. Um, you can do both. And Georgia State has done both. And with luck, we'll continue to do so. And is you know, in the process of showing other institutions how you can do both. Yes. Well, I'm going to pass it on to Catherine, who will pass it on to Tim. And they may send it back to me um, just for one more question and a wrap-up. Uh, Catherine? Thank you so much for being on the show. This is really interesting to me. I worked in higher education for a long time um, in a, at a large state university and at Emory, um, not a state university here in Georgia. And um, it's fascinating to me that um, the, the transformation that Georgia State has made, and I'm really – intrigued by um, this sense of um, student engagement that you talk about in your book and this chat bot and just this whole idea of engaging students, which is something that, um, honestly, I worked in, like I said, I worked in higher education for a very long time, about 20 years, and students were always sort of the, the least uh, important uh, part of the equation. It was the faculty and the research funding and the, you know, administrative uh, details. So uh, I'm interested in your reflection on what, what prompted um, Georgia State to really examine how they engage, how they interacted with students and how that uh, helped in this transformation. Well, I think that's a great point you make, you know, and as an outsider, somebody who doesn't deal with education day in and day out, it was a real shock to me to understand the degree to which universities in general do not exist for the benefit of their students. You know, there are other things, <laughs> as, you, as you point out. Um, and that's crazy. Um, and I think, you know, what Georgia State did, you know, let me name some names. Um, I think that there was a structural urgency to do better by their undergraduates because they needed the revenue, uh, which was an unsentimental but very real problem that they faced in 2008, 2009, 2010. And, you know, I think it's to the then president, Mark Becker's credit, that he recognized that there was a way out of that that was not the traditional way out, which, as I mentioned earlier, is to raise your admission rates because in the recession, more people are applying to college you know, push more people out that you feel are going to fail and try and encourage more people in who are going to succeed. Um, he recognized that that was not going to work for Georgia State, and he had faith in the other name I'm going to name, which is Tim Rennett, who is the, sort of the, the, the inspiration and the, the genius behind a lot of these innovative undergraduate support programs. He had faith in Tim Rennett's analysis that said, we can do this even though many other people in the senior leadership of Georgia State were saying, no, we can't. You know, these students are doomed to fail. There's nothing we can do. What we need to do is increase the SAT scores of the incoming undergraduates. That's what's going to help us. And Tim Rennick is this remarkable guy. He's not your usual, you know, egocentric 
look at me, I'm so great academic. He is completely soft-spoken. He's all about getting to where he wants to get. He uses data, which he learned to use when he was a religious studies professor and was fighting with the philosophy department for his own academic survival. He uses data in order to just demonstrate that what he's talking about works. Um, and then data then got incorporated into the undergraduate experience as well, most notably with the advising service. You know, the way they revolutionized advising in Georgia State was really the key to everything. That instead of waiting for students to come to the advising office and saying, I think I have a problem, they turned it around and made it proactive, first of all, so that the advisor's office was, was keeping an eye on everybody and calling them in when they saw a problem. And they're also making it uh, predictive. So someone comes in, is invited in rather after their first six weeks and say, well, I noticed you're, you've got a major in the natural sciences. You've got a C in your first chemistry test. This is six weeks into their university careers. You know, we have predictive analysis that shows that if there's not some compelling reason why, you know, you weren't on, at the top of your game that day, you're probably not going to graduate in your chosen major. So let's look at what you did well in and let's redirect you really fast. And this is just a game changer. It not only puts people on, in the right majors much faster, but it also gives them the sense that the institution has got their back. The people right, care about exactly. who they are, want to help define who they are, which is a huge part of the undergraduate experience for everybody. It's all about finding out who you are. And too often, you know, lower-income students have no family support because the family has no experience of the university world, may not have the money, may not have the backup to fill in forms, et cetera, et cetera. Then they get to campus and no one seems to really care about them. It's like, here, go to this class here, go to this class there. Good luck. Um, and Georgia State understood that's not good enough. And universities everywhere are now beginning to understand that's not good enough. And that's a you know, remarkable turnaround given the tradition of how university education has worked as you know, essentially um, a privilege for middle class and upper middle class kids. And now... Georgia State has shown, it doesn't have to be that. It can be for everybody. Everybody can benefit. All you need is to show that you're bright and motivated and you will be fine. Yeah, this is like such a game changer. I, I, one of the things I did when I worked in higher education, I worked in um, admissions in a gra for a graduate program. And all they really ever looked at was, um, you know, uh, GRE scores and you know, research experience, basically. <clears throat> and we started, uh, while I was there, one of my fellow, one of the faculty members that I worked with was intrigued by the fact that some of our, some of our students who had really good GRE scores and seemed to be the ideal science student were not performing well after the second year. So we started tracking that, and we found that GRE scores were absolutely not indicative of good performance in graduate school. <laughs> like, in fact, they were counter-indicated. So it's really interesting that finally people are starting to examine some of these, um, these long-held traditions of, look, uh, of, you know, looking at how they can engage these students and how we can help them perform and it's great that they're doing it at the undergraduate level instead of waiting until they're in a graduate program that they're maybe not suited to. So I'm really glad that you right. wrote the book. It's um it's very it's fascinating. Thank you. You know, with you know one of the one of the things that I talk about in the book that everybody at Georgia State talks about is my 
insight is that, you know, it's, it's, it's so much analogous to what happened in professional baseball when you had the sabermetricians come along in the 90s and 2000s and say, the way you're looking at this game is completely wrong. And here's all the data that's going to show how we can actually analyze better who are the good players, you know, um, what is real performance on the field, not based on what you're looking with your eyes, but, you know, taking data that is far vaster than any one human can understand and, and extract things from it. And Georgia State has done the same thing for students. You know, um, I, I think they've done it at the graduate level too, but the undergraduate level, let me just give you a couple of very quick examples. Um, you know, first of all, the, the reliance on the SAT test. You know, it's been known actually since the 40s that all that the SAT test really tells you is um, how much money the student's family has and whether their parents right. are in college. That's pretty much it. Um, so, you know, once you have the data to prove that, and there's much more data now than there was 18 years ago, you can decide, you know, how much weight do we give to the SAT? Why do we care about it? Do we care about it? And Georgia State has a kind of a blended model where they look at SAT scores, mainly to understand how much support students have coming in. Uh, but they also look at high school GPA, which is much more predictive. Um, and then, you know, with this predictive analysis in terms of the student performance, once they get to campus, you know, one place where this has been super important is the nursing school, because the nursing school, they used to have a two-year introductory program, at which point 90% of the aspiring nursing students were told, sorry, you don't make the cut. So these students would have spent two years trying to do one thing, and then they had to switch to something else. And one thing that Tim Rennick and his team looked at is, well, what are they doing in those two years? And is it the most useful stuff that they could be doing? And how much is it helping students to switch to other things? And what he found out was that, you know, anatomy, which had been part of first-year nursing forever, was not especially predictive of whether people were going to be good at nursing or not. Whereas chemistry, 100%, really predictive and also super useful for the students who aren't going to be nurses to go do something else. So he cut the two years back to one year. Uh, you know, this is in consultation, obviously, with the nurse, nursing faculty, but using data to sort of figure out uh, what's going on, completely changed the curriculum for that one year so that it was focused entirely on predictive courses. So the nursing school was comfortable, okay, we only need one year to figure out who's going to make the cut, not two. And then Tim Runnick could then take those other students and find other majors for them and make sure that they finished and graduated as well. And, you know, data drove all of that. And there are many other examples, but that, that I think is a very powerful one. Well, great work. And uh, it's nice to see that it's getting some attention. So uh, congratulations. And now Thank I'm going to pass it to Tim. Tim? Good evening, Mr. Gumble. Thank you for being on with us tonight. I, I was curious about something. The title of the book, why did you choose that particular title? That's an excellent question. I think there's a few different things. Um, you know, one is I wanted to convey both the, you know, passion and the aspirations of the students who really are the heart and soul of, of, of the story, as far as I'm concerned, you know, their experience and their interaction with the institution. Um, so the idea of won't lose the stream is, is, is the idea of the student being determined, you know, not to lose the dream. But it's also the determination of the institution to make sure that if students who are bright and motivated come along and have every reason to succeed, that the institution is not going to let the dream die. So it works from both ends. Um, I will also tell you that, you know, my inspiration is a little bit, there's a, there's a not terribly well-known song by Aretha Franklin from the Civil Rights Era called um, Don't Let Me Lose This Dream, 
Um, and if you listen to that song, it's on her album. Um, it's one of her first albums. I forget the title. But if you listen to it, it, it could almost be a description of a student at a university, you know, saying, I, I, I'm, I'm going to push ahead. I don't want to fail. Um, and I like the association with the civil rights era and the idea of, you know, young black students, especially uh, who make up, you know, a very large number of, of students at Georgia State, you know, coming in with that determination, I am not going to fail. And that coming to an institution that recognizes that and gives them the support they need and makes sure that indeed they go on and succeed and that the society can transform, you know, just as the civil rights movement helped transform American society and obviously Georgia society in some fundamental legal ways, I think, you know, there's a chance that what is going on at Georgia State is the foundation of a new civil rights movement, which is all focused on education and focused specifically on, you know, not just people of color, but just anybody who comes from a lower income background, a disadvantaged background, from historically disadvantaged groups of people for one reason or another, and says, we don't care about any of that. We only care about your talent and making sure that you succeed. And I, you know, for me, that is endlessly inspiring. Hmm. Now, another uh, thing I was curious about, Georgia State, as you noticed when you arrived there, is is not, shall we say, your typical college campus. It is in high-rise buildings maintained literally in midtown Atlanta. So do you think that the location of Georgia State campus was a central part of this story? I would take that question, I turn it around actually, and just say that because of Georgia State's success, downtown Atlanta has come back. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, um, I'm talking to a Georgia audience, so I, I feel like a little bit of an interloper, but you know, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, the banks, the insurance companies, you know, all the businesses that used to be downtown, uh, the department stores, um, they all left starting in the 1980s. And it was a pretty, you know, pretty desolate place. And Georgia State, uh, uh, you know, as of the mid-90s, was not a residential campus. And then the Olympics uh, in 96 gave an opportunity for Georgia State to acquire residential housing. They started off taking some of the Olympic Village that had been at Georgia Tech. And then quickly, under Carl Patton's leadership, they started finding locations downtown to put students. Um, and then, you know, one of the one of the corollary benefits of the recession in 2008 was it enabled Georgia State to acquire a large number of buildings at bargain prices, to lease out some of the parking decks, um, to lease out some of the space, and they really transformed downtown Atlanta into this engine, which is you know, fundamentally the university. But all kinds of other things are going on there, too. You have restaurants now. You have businesses coming back. And obviously, COVID has thrown everything for a loop. So I'm not going to talk about COVID because who knows what that's going to, how that's going to shake out. But certainly up to the spring of 2020, you know, what you were seeing was the revival of downtown Atlanta and the ability of not only the university, but city planners, um, all kinds of people to really dream about what you can do with not only downtown, but now, you know, across the interstate um, with the Georgia State football stadium where the old Braves 
baseball field was um, and transforming people's town and, and the areas around that uh, with economic revival, offering them jobs, offering their kids, you know, the opportunity to go to Georgia State and on and on. So there's you know, another way in which I think Georgia State has very, been very innovative is as an engine of urban renewal. Um, and I don't know too many universities that have managed that. Mm-hmm. I, I know that in an earlier interview that you gave that I read, uh, you, you stated pretty much that your perception of higher education in America had changed after you saw what happened at Georgia State. And as you know, there are many in this country right now who actually attack higher education, who consider it some sort of imagined enemy, political or otherwise, and even question whether it is needed. After your experience at Georgia State, what what would you say to those who condemn view of higher education? Well, it's a complicated set of issues, but you know, at base, here is something that people across the political spectrum can agree on, which is we live in a world now where at least two thirds of the available jobs require some form of post-secondary qualification. That's just reality. Mm-hmm. You know, 50 years ago, you didn't need a college degree to get a career. Now you do. Um, mm-hmm. So if you need a degree, where are you going to get it? You're going to go to have higher education. That's where they, that's where they give you a university education and give you degrees. So, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know that a lot of the conversation around critical race theory or woke students or, you know, uh, faculty indoctrinating their students with dangerous ideas or whatever you hear on Fox News and on the talk radio or whatever. I think that a lot of people on the right tend to give a pass to institutions like Georgia State because they recognize that it's about giving people an education, getting them in the door, getting them out the door as fast and as successfully as possible. So that gives me some mm-hmm. kind of hope that there is actually a residual respect for institutions of higher education. It's just you have to get away from the talking points and the ideologues and the partisan bickering. Um, mm-hmm. Having said that, you know, obviously the people who go to Georgia State are human beings, just like the people who go to other universities. Uh, if you have a campus that has a very large number of African-American students, uh, they're going to have opinions about critical race theory, whether this is something that is just a cudgel to bash um, home, you know, uh, coded coded points that are left over from the old system in the right, or whether it's you know something else, you know they're going to have opinions about the world after George Floyd and about the police and all these things. Um, and you know there's a reality that you have a pretty liberal city and you have a large number of minority students that are going to feel strongly on subjects. Uh, that the legislature that is right next door, which is dominated by the Republican Party, are going to feel very differently about. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know how that's going to play out now. I know when Mark Becker was president, he made it his business to avoid any hint or semblance of behavior on his part that could smack of a challenge to the partisan instincts of the legislature. He tried as hard as possible to be consensual and to avoid any kind of, you know, party politics. And it, it was actually interesting as in, terms of, in terms of his approach because he made his whole argument about why Georgia State needed this piece of help or that piece of help in order to further the success of their students without ever really talking about race. He made it about, you know, the, the economic argument. It's, you know, if we mint lots of graduates, we're going to have 
more workers in the Atlanta economy. Atlanta's going to thrive. Georgia's going to thrive. Everybody wins. Uh, and he deliberately played down, you know, the, the, you know, what you could argue is the sort of the left argument, which is, you know, you have a historically disadvantaged group of people and we owe it to them to lift them up. Um, you know, the kind of the civil rights argument. Um, and it's not that one argument precludes the other, they go hand in hand, but, you know, as a strategy, that was his way of dealing with it. There were certain members of the legislature, I even hesitate to say their names to a Georgia audience because it was made very clear to me by people at the university that don't, don't get them excited. Um, you know, they were very wary with and made sure, you know, if they were upset about something that student affairs was doing that had some kind of smacked of wokeness or smacked of this or that or the other, they were going to, you know, deal with it, not because they necessarily had a view on whether, you know, student affairs organizing some kind of um, group exercise constituted left-wing indoctrination or not, but just because they wanted to get the legislature off their backs. It's like, if the legislature is taking an interest in what we're doing and starting to make waves, everybody loses. If we keep them quiet, everybody wins. You know, now we have an African-American president um, who presumably, you know, and I don't, I don't know what he said so far, if anything, and I don't know what his approach is going to be. Um, but, you know, in an election year, in a time when, you know, the whole notion of critical race theory is sure to be a talking point in the campaign, you know, when there are a lot of, you know, flashpoint issues that directly affect the lives of African-American students at Georgia State in particular, as an African-American president, is he going to stay silent? You know, we'll see. Or is he going to find some form of words where he represents black students because that's what they will expect of him, but also avoids the controversy? Or is he going to wade into a fight? You know, I can't tell you. It is definitely sensitive territory. That much I can say. Well, I thank you for that, Mr. Gumble. And with that, I am going to send it back to David to close the segment. David? Yes. Well, Andrew, um, when I originally booked you for the show, um, I'd planned to keep it all on education and how um, Georgia State has transformed Atlanta uh, as well but, and not talk about sports. But I did not know that, unfortunately, this weekend that Dan Reeves would pass away. And a lot of people are going to know Dan Reeves' pro football exploits where he's the only person ever to um, play in multiple Super Bowls and coach multiple Super Bowls, the ninth winningest coach of all time. But in probably his last major football act, he was the special advisor um, to Georgia State to launch the football program. Tell us what you can about Dan Reeves' role in that as a way of honoring him in this weekend of his passing. Sure. Well, I will tell you right away, I never met Dan Reeves. Um, but this is the story that I was told. Um, so Georgia State had a government relations uh, head by the name of Tom Lewis. He'd worked for governors. He knows everybody in the legislature. He is like a quintessentially political uh, person in the sense that, you know, he knows everyone. He knows how to talk to everybody. He can get along with anybody. Um, he makes sure he commits to memory, all kinds of facts about everybody he meets. He works tremendously hard at it. He's I mean, he's, you know, Georgia down to his toenails. Um, so Tom Lewis was very gung-ho on the idea of football. You know, he told Carl Patton, the president at the time, um, that, you know, 
this is something that is going to get us taken seriously. And he was right about that. You know, the, the state legislature didn't care about Georgia State before they had a football team. They cared about it after. They didn't care about Georgia Perimeter College, no matter how much they expanded over the decades, because they didn't have a football team. Um, but Carl Patton was very nervous because he was in the process of turning Georgia State into a, a campus university, having been a commuter school. And he felt like there were so many other things he wanted to do first. He didn't want to spend his time on football. So Tom Lewis um, managed to persuade him by raising some seed money from you know, his donors. He managed to get the student body to vote in favor of an increase in the fees to pay for everything. And then as a last step, Carl Patton said, you know, I want an outside consultant to come in and tell us, is this going to work? Um, and Tom Lewis, this is such a Tom Lewis story. He happened to go get his hair cut at the same place as Dan Reeves. And I don't know how he did it, but he made sure that he was there on the same day. I'm sure he sweet talked the barber or something to make sure he'd know when Dan Reeves was coming. And just came up to him and just says, Dan, you know, in the way that Tom talks to everybody and just said, you know, would you do this? Would you come and take a look and tell us honestly, you know, if you don't think it's going to work, please tell us no. But if you think it's going to work, great. You know, your call. And he did. And he did his due diligence. And he came back and said, I think this can be tremendously successful. And that was the thing that persuaded Carl Patton, who really didn't want to deal with football, that he should go ahead and institute a football program. And the first game happened you know, a couple of years after Patton had retired and was no longer president, but he came to the first game and he came up to Tom Lewis. I assume Dan Reeves was there. I, I don't know that part of, the, part of the story, but he came up to Tom Lewis and said, you know what? You were right. This was a good idea. So Dan Reeves is part of the law, not only of Georgia State, but also of transforming Turner Field in, into a football stadium. And, you know, um, that is... I think probably a footnote in his achievements, but nonetheless, it's one that I'm familiar with, and maybe your listeners weren't until just now. Yes. Well, anything when someone passes that can honor their legacy is a good thing, um, and obviously there are more stories we can tell, but they're not really fit for or meant for this interview is a good fit. Um, well, Andrew, since you're on, tell our listeners the way you would prefer them buy your book. Oh, wow. Well, I'm a, big fan, I'm a big fan of independent bookstores. So if, if you have a favorite independent bookstore, um, you should you know, go there if you can. Uh, there are independent bookstores online as well. Um, so that would be my preference. Um, but mostly, you know, if you are moved to read the book, uh, buying it or getting it from the library or however you do and you think that this can generate interesting discussion and get people thinking in ways that are going to be productive for students in your community um, that is what is going to make me happiest really because you know sometimes I write things and what I'm really interested in is people reading and saying isn't this a great author and I can't wait to read the next book by him uh, this is not really one of those projects this was a project where I just felt fully invested in the people I was writing about and the way that lives are being changed in real time, you know, year by year, the number of graduates is, is increasing and the number of people who's, you know, multiple generations of living in poverty being turned around. And it's, it's an extraordinary thing to see. So if, if this book can contribute to that process of helping people see how talented young people who don't have a lot of advantages can capitalize on those talents and transform their lives and the lives of their families, that. Nothing would make me happier. All right. And I will more a little plug for you. Tell everybody the website where they can read about you and your work. 
Right. Well, I just have a website, www.andrewgumbel.com. You can read more about the book. You can read some of my recent journalism. You can find out about my other projects. Um, and you can also find an email address if you want to get in touch with me. Yes. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to use your words against you. I do think you're an excellent author. I read the book or listened to the book, launched this dream, and now I can't wait to listen to Down for the Count. And once I listen to it, and Tim and Catherine may read it as well, we want to get you back on Kudzu Vine in, in the months to come to discuss Down for the Count. That would be great. I mean, it's, it's a more depressing subject, <laughs> certainly in the context of Georgia, you know, what's going on with voting rights, but it's a very important one, so I'd, I'd be pleased to. I also would just mention, and I'm sure, David, you would endorse this, that the the reader on the audio version of, of Won't Lose the Stream, Leon Nixon, is outstanding. Um, I've had very mixed feelings about audio versions of my books in the past. This one, I love. Yeah, he did an excellent job, but he did have great material to read, so... Um, Hopefully he would agree with that as well. That's yes. very kind of you. Thank you. Yes. Well, Andrew, we've enjoyed this thoroughly and um, can't wait to get you on um, in the weeks to come. Fabulous. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Andrew Gumbel, um, author of Won't Lose This Dream, and he writes many books and, and – and, you know, some are uh, appropriate for this show, and given that we're very Southern in our inclination, but you want to have good outcomes in politics and a university transforming itself to the positive as well as those. And then, of course, voting is the core of what we talk about. So we want to have Andrew on again. Uh, guys, it is the time to close the show, but we've taken a few weeks off, so uh, we can go one or two ways with this. We can go ahead and push through and finish our discussion with David Purdue and maybe have a little bit of a jagged show that's over an hour, or we can go hit the pause button on it. Um, Catherine, Tim, any thoughts? Yeah, uh, you you do whatever you need to do. Okay, Catherine, you you good for a few more minutes? Sure. All right. Well, I didn't want to, you know, get, I didn't want to make y'all work overtime. Um, on this, <laughs> but I figured we go ahead and finish this out. By the way, one note on Dan Reeves, a uh, little-known fact, he came to interview for the Falcons in the late 70s, and it was at the County Stadium, and he said, y'all got to build a facility, and they built Swanee. And when he was hired by the Falcons in the 90s, he said, y'all got to have a better facility, and they built Flowery Branch. Uh, and then, of course, he started Georgia State football. Um, he is from Tim's home county of Floyd in Silver Creek, so um, some more notes there. Uh, about how influential he was in Georgia football in a broader sense. Um, but let's get back into the discussion. Uh, Catherine, you gave some excellent reasons why you think uh, David Perdue will be the weak candidate against Stacey Perdue. I'll tell you why I think it will be better for Brian Kemp. I think if Brian Kemp wins the nomination, almost every one of Brian Kemp's will vote for David Perdue in a general election. But if Brian wins, I think a lot of David Perdue's supporters or hardcore Trumpians that may only vote in general elections may sit on their hands and just not vote for Brian Kemp or Stacey Abrams. And that's a half win for Stacey Abrams because they'll be voters off the Republicans' totals. And that's the reason I think um, – Brian would be the better candidate for her to face. But I do understand that he 
does have a record in the Revian plant that just got recruited. That might be persuadable to voters. So obviously um, that, that may be more record to cut a commercial on than, hey, I went to a baseball game in Washington with Donald Trump back in, you know, 2020. Uh, Tim, now let's, let's say. Well, on Purdue, he, he's been elected statewide before, and he barely lost re-election. He is well-financed, of course. Now, of course, in the primaries, he's got to face the incumbent governor, uh, along with Vernon Jones, who might get, you know, 10% of the vote if he maxes out, although I don't think he will. And he's also supported wholeheartedly by Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump probably hates Brian Kemp more than any Republican governor in this country right now. He has gone so far as to say that if Brian Kemp is the Republican nominee, that you know, he's going to tell his voters not to vote, or if they do want to vote, to go over and vote for Stacey Abrams. Uh, and we got to remember something here. Trump has endorsed candidates in about all 50 federal and statewide races around the country. He is making this a referendum on himself in the midterms. And he's had some success in his party. Until I see Donald Trump fail to dominate the Republican Party, I will continue to believe that most of his favorite candidates will do well. Therefore, in the primary, I am buying David Perdue. And I would say he has about a 45% chance of a general election win. Uh, I'm not going to sell him outright, but I'm going to do a weak hold on him for the general election. Yes. Um, I, I don't know that I ever said a buy, sell, and hold, but I, too, would buy him in the primary, even though I would rather see Brian Kemp as the nominee against Stacey Abrams. I would have to do a soft buy on him in the general just because – until Republicans win election after, I'm sorry, Democrats are able to win election after election in Georgia, the Republican nomination is pretty valuable. And even states like Virginia, where Democrats won election after election, which, you know, kind of arose from the dead. And I do think Glenn Youngkin's a more moderate Republican than the two, um, and even three or four, if you throw in um, Vernon Jones and Candace Taylor. Um now, one thing I want to just ask y'all about real quick before we close this up is David Perdue, both in his launching video and since then, continues to reuse the phrase, over my dead body. How sick of over my dead body do you think Georgia voters are going to be before either this, gen this primary runoff or general elections are? Catherine? Oh, I didn't even notice that he kept saying that. Yes. Um, Tim, have you noticed? Yeah, I've noticed, and I'm already sick of it, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, you made a point, David, about until you see Democrats win elections consistently in Georgia. 
In 2006, Mark Taylor lost by 20 points. In 2010, Roy Barnes lost by 10 points. In 2014, Jason Carter lost by 7 points. In 2018, Stacey Abrams lost by half a point. Do we see a trend there? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. But, I mean, and if it continues to be this linear line, then there's going to be no going back. Does it hit a certain point in that last little bit? It's kind of like weight loss. You know, you lose some weight. It comes off. It comes off. And our weight training and your, you know, increasing your max your, or your squat or your bench. And then you hit a plateau. Well, At some point, you, we hit that plateau. But, but, but there's a similarity between what's going on now and what happened in the U.S. Senate runoffs in 2020, and you know who the big elephant in the room is. It's Donald Trump. If he doesn't get his way here, he is perfectly willing to hand the election to the opposition party to make a point. Isn't that true? Yes, and that would be Brian Kemp being the nominee, because I think if Right. Know, some strange thing happened and Vernon Jones were to win it, he would probably support Vernon Jones. I, I believe the biggest loser of David Perdue running is uh, Vernon Jones because I think had David Perdue not gotten in, Donald Trump might have endorsed Vernon Jones and he might have done better than anyone would have anticipated just because of Trump's endorsement. Um, mm-hmm. Catherine, any thoughts on how big a loser uh, Vernon Jones was out of all this? Oh, yeah, I think he's the big loser there. Absolutely. All right. Well, next week um, we're going to have on the kudzu vine um, Kyle Condit discussing his book um, about redistricting. So we're going to be joining Kyle again. And until then, it's been the kudzu vine. Good night, guys. of that first revolution will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world America has